2: Hello and welcome to Caged In. I'm your host Petros and this is your weekly slice of Nick Cage goodness. You join me this week for a special bonus episode of a Caged In conversation and I had the absolute pleasure of being joined by Marco Kyris, a gentleman who was Nick Cage's stand-in for 10 years plus years we're talking from the years of 1994 to 2005 and he was on set for all of those movies we're talking what some would argue the golden era of cage we had that one two three punch of the rock con air and face off all the way up to doing the first national treasure film to finally talking about his final film with him which was lord of war and it's, uh, it's a real great conversation and I won't take up too much of your time and we'll get straight into it. Please join me back at the end to have a chat about what's coming up and what is in store for the future of Cage In. But please very much enjoy this conversation with Marco <laughs> Behind every great actor, there is a great stand-in. To talk about his Cage wage years, his words, not mine, from 1994 to 2005, my guest stood in the place of the man himself, Nick Cage. We're here to find out what the life of a stand-in is really like in that whirlwind journey through the 90s, and to what some may seem the golden years of Nicolas Cage. Coincidence? Well, that's why my guest is here today, because he was there the whole time. I have the absolute pleasure of being joined today by Michael, Marco Kairis. How are you today Marco?
1: Good. How are you sir?
2: I'm very well thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, good. I'm faring well. Things are easing up in the UK. How how are things over you're based in Toronto, right? How how are things over? Yeah.
1: The they're they're starting to ease up. They're, you know, and and the summer helps, but they are starting to ease up.
2: Perfect. So yeah. Obviously before we get into as what you have coined the cage wage years. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk to you, obviously, um, about the, the, uh, the early years of your life. Obviously, um, like me, you share a Greek heritage. And what was, what was that like? Did that set you up to kind of give you aspirations to become an actor in some way? Or what, what was what was it like growing up for you? When was the first time like, you kind of went, oh, the silver screen, that's something I want to be a part of?
1: Um well no the greek heritage didn't do that um at all i i you know everybody grows up very differently Petra, as you know and uh we were your typical working class um immigrants with with not much of anything uh like most back then it was the 60s and the 70s so no i just i was looking for glam just through the television like anybody else um and watching all those fun tv shows in the 60s and 70s and just thought wow how cool is that stuff but I didn't know anything about it just like anybody else who was a young person I was I was just on the superficial side of life looking at it like wow wouldn't it be so cool to like be in Hollywood at some point and maybe be an actor or a movie star or you know something to that effect but how do you get there and what do you do and how do you cross the border from Canada to the States it was hard enough crossing From your immigrant household into Canada (laughs) you know because everything was Greek at home so it was really like living in Greece but in the Greek community and then it's like oh I'm 20 years old and everybody actually speaks English outside of my house it's like oh that's kind of weird I am in Canada so it was kind of like um it was euphoric actually realizing that not everybody around me had to be Greek to begin with even though we were in Canada it was kind of silly but uh, that in itself kind of brought me into a different world and then slowly uh, through the, uh, the Hollywood world. But uh, I didn't really pursue it strongly. I, I kind of thought I was in love with the idea of being an actor. And uh, I kind of had movie star looks and I had a kind of movie star body at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm a lot older, but at the time, and, you know, I fancied myself a little bit like a modely boy. And a lot of people kind of took me in that respect. So I ended up going to uh, L.A. years later when I was in my mid-20s and um, and through a lot of mishaps and, you know, green card issues and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Long story. Um, I ended up getting a couple of minor parts, but uh, I was really bad. And uh, I ended up going uh, back home, realizing that uh, I was not the I was not cut out to be an actor. You really have to be quite a studious guy and and study hard to be an actor i was the opposite of studying hard i just thought i'd show up and say a couple words and they'll like me it was the it was so i was so misleading myself (laughs) (laughs) it was the stupidest thing boy just dumb and dumber i'm gonna tell you so anyway i went back home and i actually um ended up getting a job as a stand-in um because i gave up the career as an actor knowing that it really was a, a very difficult um, avenue to pursue and having been in la already so i i was a waiter and then i uh did an audition thing for for um, a nick cage film here in toronto and i grew on the lake and i got the job as a stand-in which i had never done before and uh and that kind of like led me into his camp
2: so that film you're talking about is trapped in paradise right uh yes so yes. what 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 was that film like? What was it like being on the set? Obviously, it's it looked it looks freezing looking at, at the film yeah. itself, and uh, obviously uh, the the oddest like kind of pairing of brothers that you could ever imagine. They kind of look like the three Stooges as opposed to uh, the people from the same gene pool in in uh, John Lovitz and Dana Carvey, his co stars. But yeah, what was what was it like on set for that? And obviously, your first time as an outing as a stand in was it was it did you have any thoughts of what it would be like or, or was it was it kind of just I don't know I'll, I'll, I'll make this up as I go along
1: uh kind of that but uh, <laughs> you know you're kind of briefed up on it once you get the part and the reason I got the part is because I, I I had a likeliness to cage at the time the hair the height the weights everything was very similar at the time and uh and I didn't really um you know want the job per se because i was in a restaurant it was cozy and warm in january in a restaurant as a waiter but um and then to go out there when they tell you that it's nights it's a night shoot and you're in niagara on the lake and and i mean by the lake and it's 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 right by niagara falls and the weather was anywhere between minus 25 and minus 35 celsius every day um i'm the kind of guy who always catches the flu and catches a cold and has sinus infections, so i was sick the entire time and it was fucking hellish on that level. Like every day was brutal. I would actually stand in standing up sleeping under that fur hat. I actually used to pass out and snore while I was standing in while they were lighting me. Because it was the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning. It was really funny in the snow, if you can even picture it for five seconds. But what was rewarding was the the director was a blast and uh, watching these three characters, the three leads from Nick to, to the other guys, they were like three orphans, not like three brothers but they were this mish, mish mixed no mish mish mass, max English. How do you say it in English? Uh, uh, Miss mismatch. Mismatched <laughs> mismatched trio that ended up you know playing brothers. And that was hysterical in itself. But off camera, the guys were hysterical and then all the supporting characters were funny. And that kind of kept us rolling. But I had no fucking clue um, what I was doing until I started to do what I was told to do. And then I started to kind of take over marking and, and moving through the motions uh, in his character just because I felt like it was quite chaotic on a film set. And yes. I thought, I brought my logic to it and somehow it was recognized. And um, And from that point on, I ended up working with Nick. So, obviously, we've jumped
2: into, obviously, your work as a stand-in. But to those people listening at home, uh, what 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 really entails to be a stand-in? What is, the, what is kind of the job description, really? What, or, like, how would you describe what a stand-in does?
1: You're basically doing whatever the actor does. So, during the setup, so whatever the scene may be, other than stunts, they have, you know, stunts are stunts yep. uh, because it's dangerous and you're not qualified for it. But a stand-in is basically... A, a moving, non-talking mannequin um, in the likeliness of what the character is, the actor. Whatever it is, walking, standing, sitting, maybe jogging, um, having conversations at a din- dining table, you kind of like emulate everything he does. And that includes for close-up shots, to back up to... You know movements to um, side shots so all that stuff is basically you're like an understudy on Broadway without really dealing with the dialogue yes. sometimes you go through dialogue just um, to help the camera and the cinematographer but you're there to aid the crew for lighting purposes and the motion you have to understand how the actors character is gonna move as well yes. so you can't move at a different pace when the actors moving at a different pace, you know, because there are certain dolly tracks of cameras and they, they move at the pace of the actor, they're following the actor. So you have to really put yourself in that person's shoes. It helped because I took acting classes years before in LA. And so I kind of already knew that stuff, but I was using those skills to work for this particular actor who was very generous. I'm going to say from the very get go to my surprise, um, uh, so that's basically it so you do everything in terms of lighting sometimes rehearsals um, in in whatever the scene may be as long as it doesn't involve a dangerous stunt
2: so obviously you ended up having this 10-year career for, yes. for Nick Cage and was there something on the set of uh, Lost in Paradise that you may have done or did you kind of like go above the kind of push your head above the parapet and kind of go I'm the guy you want to be working with and was it was yeah what how, how did the relationship form to kind of develop this this long standing career that you had working for him
1: well i was never the guy who said i'm the guy as you should be hiring <laughs> ever because it was to me was a one shot deal you know so it was just a, a a job to get me through the winter during a depression in in toronto and because I was making no money in the restaurant, I took this job because it, it paid very well for its time. And uh, I really needed some funds to get out of debt. And uh, because I was already in the actors' union, both in the states and Canada, and I had a green card, um, but living back in Canada, I just did what I thought was right. So there are many scenes where, you know, there the actors aren't told or shown where their marks are, or showing. Um, which line that they have to go beeline to their destination in the scene. And I would kind of intercept uh, Petros and I would tell Nick that these are your marks. This is what we've laid out for you. And, uh, and are you okay with these marks? And there are two cameras that are going to be following you and there'll be an A camera and a B camera. And I would tell them the lenses and I would say that it favors your left side and you have to kind of, you know, at the end of the scene, you kind of like get on your knees and, and look over the snowbank, for example. And uh, and that's kind of like where they'd like to end the scene, if that's okay with you. And he would say, sure, no problem. And he would listen to me kind of direct his motions. Not that he didn't know what he was going to do, but once he's done his rehearsal, after that, the cameras get into motion. And with that, every scene slightly changes. So he comes back on set after two, three, four hours, and sees what we have changed and he watches through the rehearsals of what we have changed but I'm kind of describing to him what we've changed and if it would work for him and versus the director running out there because these scenes are real exterior long shots and since I'm standing right there I took it upon myself to kind of like show him and then I would mark him in the snow or mark him on the streets or you know put little little uh, dots or or color code it with something that would that he could see on on camera that the camera doesn't pick up and all that helped him without a lot of mumbo jumbo and camera guys and cinematographers and directors talking to him. I would just kind of say, these are the marks. This is it. These are the camera angles and that's it. And, and the director was like, yeah, Nick, are you ready to go? He's like, yeah, ready to go. Let's shoot. He didn't even need a rehearsal. He's like, I got it. And he's kind of like a one take kind of dude. Uh, And the only times they usually take more takes is technical reasons, but uh, he's, He doesn't miss a beat. And I realized that he was right on par. And I just kind of tapped into getting the thing going quicker. I have to also, in my defense, I was so fucking cold on that (laughs) film set. If they sat and talked with four other, five other people to tell them where to go and how to do things, it prolongs my outside standing in. And it's like, fuck this shit. I'm going to tell them where it's got to go. So just shoot it and let's get on to the next scene so I can go inside and warm up. So that, that was like the alternative, uh, you know, a motive for me. Well, you could And he say, recognized it.
2: Yeah, yeah, you could say accidentally by you just wanting to keep warm, you gave yourself this 10-year career, whether you wanted it or not. As you said, for you, it's yeah. just a, a one-time deal. And obviously, yeah, from Trapped in Paradise, um, you got to work on I don't, one of Cage's strangest performances for me in uh, Kiss of Death, where he kind of mm-hmm. plays this like, probably his like biggest role right like he's the one yeah. like just he's bulky he's like this I don't, I, I'm trying to think of the words to describe him it's this kind of like New Jersey-esque like gangster like shell suits and just l- looking a bit like gruff and tough and did you have to match him like in every film like kind of weight for weight or like when it came to that one, wasn't
1: it? Uh I, I didn't do that much because uh I, I did some photo doubling, but this was a second film. I actually didn't know what he was gonna look like or do. Oh. And being as on, on a second film, I had no clue. I was just happy to get a job. I was, yeah. you know, between gigs and I got another standing gig when I was in Toronto. This was in New York. I took it. Um, I put myself up. It was a real low-paying job. It was like, you know, kind of threw you in debt. It was miserable in New York. But I didn't know what it, what it was about. I didn't. I hadn't even read the script, so um, I just kind of followed what he was doing. I wore that tank top in, and I grew a goatee, and I cut my hair as short as possible just to be as 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 comfortable in that character to help the cinematographer, kind of like so there wouldn't be any distractions. Um, but I didn't know, and and you know, going forward. I I tried to do a few things to look a little more like him, but it didn't really work. I was eating at the craft service table too much. I was a fucking pig. Typical Greek. <laughs> what was the set like <laughs>
2: on a uh, Kiss of Death? Obviously, you've got some miserable. Yeah, fucking a, misery. A, anything in particular, or just just the kind of time of year? The 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 Well, obviously, yes. David Caruso, like famously, like a TV actor at that time. Kind yeah, of on, on, on set in this. And again, there's some there's some great players in that movie with Nick himself, Samuel Jackson, Ving Rhames, like Mm -hmm. Stanley Tucci, all all like kind of like great character actors, like real. real, Yeah, kind of seem like they know what they're doing. And then you've kind of got this guy who's, I don't know, made a name for himself on TV, which I imagine is a total different world to to cinema making. So, yeah, what was it on that set that kind of like made it such a slog?
1: I think that that was the standout thing is that these were up and coming veteran actors, the, mm-hmm. the Ving Rames, the Samuel Jack, the Stanley Tucci's in particular, and, and who's also a stage actor. Uh, and then you had David Caruso who was, you know, he fumbled a lot of lines. He was a bit of a screamer, you know, cutting his own scene. Sometimes I think there was a lot of frustration. In addition, it was about 95 degrees Fahrenheit every day. It was summertime. We were in Brooklyn. We were in Queens. We were in parts of New York. It was a, uh, you know, it was, a real rogue kind of dirty film to work on. Every, everything was filthy in today's Corona world. Everybody would have died, you know, <laughs> if we shot that today, cause it was, you know, there was, you know, you would never find hand, hand sanitizer or soap or bathrooms anywhere near the set, you know, all these, the, the locations are very rough, but it was, uh, it was a tough film to work on. The hours are brutal. The ADs were brutal first and second AD, um, They were not into me very much because I was the only token guy coming in from Canada, which they were kind of resenting, including parts of the crew. But uh, I recognized the other actors were being, were really, were, you know, veteran actors. And then there was the, the factor to me was, I feel like there was a a big difference between him and the other actors. And it kind of uh, slowed things down and put things into um, not a film flow like you would think. So this film was
2: it like how did you get this was it because of Trapped in Paradise was there something you had done in that that kind of Cage saw and like was it what you said before regarding like kind of making his job as easy as possible or or like how how did that job get offered to you did you did you know it would be ongoing at this point or was it just here's another here's another like uh, breadcrumb to kind of follow and see where it goes.
1: Well, it was breadcrumb, actually, but they actually offered me the job. They said, would you like to come to New York at your expense? And if you can do it, oh, we would like to hire you and bring you, you know, and, and have you on set. And when I arrived there, Nick gave me a hug and was very pleased, genuinely pleased to see me there. He didn't think I would make it. And uh, I had, I made it. I was really surprised that he was that um, happy about it. He was, he is so genuine and so honest about his emotions and feelings. It it doesn't come through in paparazzi, as you probably know, and and uh, it pisses me off to see that part of it, but it was because of him and his assistant that really wanted me to work on that set, and they vouched for me, so they um, said that we'd like this guy while he's here, and, and the ADs had to say yes, even though I was in a New York local, They they, they kept me on board. So it was his doing all the way around, but it was breadcrumbs. I didn't know where it was going to lead yeah. in between that film and trapped in paradise. They did another film in Toronto um, um, with a cinematographer named J um, John Schwartzman, who's Nick Cage's cousin-in-law, if you can believe it. And that gave us a great rapport. And then that rapport went to cage in New York, which was the following film. And it's like, Oh, we just worked with Marco on another film and he was really good on set. And I think that that kind of like helped secure their their belief that i was going to be good in new york which i was and then they invited me to do the next film right after that uh leaving Las vegas in la so what was that like because
2: obviously it's quite a like real tense film and you can see that very much in cage's oscar-winning performance so like what what was that like being on that on that set and i guess like he would have been in his own lane on that just kind Mm -hmm. of focusing on the character and did you have much interaction or kind of like what, yeah, what, what was that set like for, for you, like?
1: Uh, no, he was in his own lane. That's a great take on it. Um, the entire film, he was in the zone. Mm-hmm. And I didn't bother him for five seconds, so though I was there doing everything and every shot. I don't even think he noticed that I was there. But it was because of him that I was there, because they, they wanted me to work on that film set. So I flew out to L.A. to do that that film. Um, And I worked more with the director with Mike Figgis, and the cinematographer Declan Quinn on that. Um, So those are the people I was basically catering to. I saw what Nick was doing in all the rehearsals, which were, it's hard to really emulate anything that he was doing. He was so in his own zone. As a as somebody who's a stand in, I just did whatever I could just to hold on to um, the movement to a certain okay. degree, but you could never really copy what he was doing. It was impossible. But I did a lot of the driving shots. I did every other shot other than a stunt. Um, so it was it was work that was very quiet and there was no talking on the set. And it was uh, pretty much like a high-end student film, but it, you felt the artistry in that film and there was no room to, to bullshit and play around. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the other films you could play around i kept my distance but i did my job as diligently as possible and um and yeah i was rewarded after that because of it i just didn't know i'd get rewarded you know for it. i mean why would i yeah but uh it was it was uh acknowledged later on was
2: there a feeling on that set that like this was something special that this was an oscar winner or was it like just as you said like uh a high-end student film was it just like uh, oh this is just going to be another an, an, another another cage movie we'll we'll see where it goes from here because obviously after this his career kind of like takes a rock like do you know what I mean? take like takes a, a a rocket ship punch into the stratosphere working with some of like the the biggest directors on
1: some of like the the biggest films of the 90s yeah, no, I mean, I you know, me being kind of green in that field, I mean, maybe the the, the producers may have thought it, uh, maybe the director, maybe Cage would have thought it, I'm not sure. Um, I didn't think it. I mean, I was thinking that this is going to be a critically acclaimed film. That's, yeah. It was very different for its time. It was very ballsy to write a script the way they did. And to bring all these cameo appearances from all these veteran actors that were in it, to me, it was like, wow, look at all these fucking people in this movie. And I recognized Everybody and I was like, "Whoa!" To me, I was on a high, just seeing everybody from Lou Rawls to to you know Richard Lewis to you name it. I was like, "Holy moly, look at these people!" So I was quiet the whole time. All I knew is that I was on something special. I didn't know where it was going to go, but I thought it would be a critically acclaimed film, and I would just you know kind of see where it goes from this point on. And that was the end of it. I just you know I thought, "Well, what a cool film to work on because of all the." characters on it mm-hmm.
2: well obviously like yeah you you might have some insider knowledge into this like was it obviously that oscar win that got the ball rolling on some of these later films that came 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 after like obviously the the release date of um the rock <clears throat> is june 2000 uh, 1996 sorry 2000 bloody hell, uh 1996 and obviously like that would have only been like a mere few months after the Oscars, so was that in production before the the Oscar had had been won, or was
1: it? Yeah, we were on the rock when he was nominated for an Oscar, mm-hmm. and that was. Uh, I saw that you know my eyes like lit up like a like a light bulb. I was like, whoa. What the fuck am I doing on this movie? I'm now with an Oscar-nominated actor. Not that he wasn't brilliant, mm-hmm. but it's like, whoa, this little film has got all these nominations, you know, in Spirit Awards and everything else that it was nominated for in Golden Globes. You realize you're onto something, but you're it's such a tiny fraction of the film to be a part of it, but but it's you're still. On this this train now that's like seems to be and then you hear that we're gonna do these big films and I I think it really paved the way everybody was kind of stunned that he that he was I think nominated and this was kind of like the gateway of like his salary going upwards and and having having the opportunity to build a large entourage at this point was going to be was part of his grander plan and he likes to diversify so he wanted to get into a variety of films and the rock was one of them but he liked to play kind of geeky because he didn't want to sway away from just some some muscle character and uh, and i think i credit him a hundred percent on the character of 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 him on on the rock i mean he was you know he really he downplayed it in that in that funny geeky kind of way that he can do and and it really worked opposite the other characters.
2: So what was it like? Obviously, I'm sure you're asked this every interview you do. And he's kind of a, a guy who is famously known for being difficult to work with. But what was it like being on set with Michael Bay? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I have to say, and I've said it often before, um, to me, it was a breeze uh, for me personally. He was loud and harsh and a screamer back then. I don't know if he really is anymore. I mean, the guy just fucking yells through everything. And I actually love that emotion because I'm an emotional person. And it was such a a difference from other films and other directors and and from what I'd seen. And it made me laugh the entire time. It brought (laughs) a lot of humor to the film set, in my opinion, even though it pissed a lot of people off because it wasn't film etiquette worthy. But it was all him, his mind, his vision, his shots, what he wanted, how he moved, the fast pace of of going from, from shot to shot to shot was you had a whole crew trying to catch up to this director. And uh, and I was on my – I was like, whoa, this is like speed like lightning. It was like, a, it was like a Japanese train going full force. So I just kept up with him because he's like, okay, great, moving on. Let's go to the next shot. And I knew that being the stand-in for Nick, I had to run and keep up with him. So as soon as they said, check the gate, I ran to the next setup, which was across the island on Alcatraz. And just to keep up with with the director, but he was just like, "Come on, guys, let's go, let's go, let's go." And if you're not there, you're fired. Like if I lagged behind or went to the bathroom or decided to go up for and have a coffee break and said, "Oh yeah, I'll be there in a bit," I mean, you're done. It's like, oh, this guy wants to get into the next shot, and what is it on? It's it's on Nick, which means it's on me for the next two hours. So I better be on my fucking balls, and and I better take a pee break in between. Um, in between uh Nick's takes, because it's the only time I can piss. So when when Bay's on you, he's on you. You better be on it. But he was very gracious to me the entire time. I don't know if I can say that for everybody, but fuck, I loved him. I fucking loved working <laughs> for him. Amazing, and obviously that that
2: film as well. Some massive, massive talent in that as well. Like, did you yeah. have any interactions with Ed Harris or? a national treasure in the united kingdom uh sean connery did you did you have any kind of glances i did with in the, the
1: hallway <laughs> i i did with ed harris a, a lot uh, he was really nice i remember going into his trailer he invited me in for just conversations and talks and he was like one of the crew uh, ed harris was just like one of the guys sean connery was very standoffish mm-hmm. as one would imagine He was also older he's a big diva now it's like you know He's has for the most part. Yeah. And uh, he is James Bond and and that's who he is. And so I had minimal interaction with him and nor did I even attempt to have interaction. Yeah. I only did whatever they said and that was it. I never went up to him. Uh, I just, you know, I stood next to him, but I wouldn't say a word. I didn't want to rock any boats there. There was so much tension on that film, but Ed Harris kept things really light and, uh and, and I, I felt a lot of comfort around Ed Harris and the other actors, of course.
2: Fantastic. So, um, yeah, obviously, uh, was it this point that you were put on, as you say, the Cage wage? Or at what point did that come, that it was kind of, I'm locked in, I'm a part of the the posse that goes with Cage when he, he does a movie?
1: Well, yeah. Um... I, I the rock kind of started it but I I was kind of on on I, I wasn't on the cage wage but I was part of the perk package mm-hmm. but there were a lot of uh loopholes in terms of fu- uh funding me and putting me up and so forth that was kind of uh uh there were a lot of issues between that and that was kind of like a battle through the entire film and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it through and uh, cage had already thought that I was already on a certain perk financial package he didn't know i would never go up to him and tell him anything uh, but he just assumed that i was a part of that but he, i wasn't and um and then the next film after that as as well and it took till till we got to face off and then i got a lot of back pay after that because he didn't know until i told him that, uh, later on on face off and then the back pay started to roll backwards and to my shock and surprise it was all his doing all of it to to bring me up to par um, because he thought I was already there on The Rock. Uh, he didn't know, and uh, he was assured that I was, and and I certainly wasn't going to run around and say anything at that point.
2: So, obviously, you've mentioned the next film, which is, like, uh, to many people, and myself, uh, one of my favourite Nick Cage films, Con Air. Um, yeah. And uh, kind of, I think a lot of people don't realise that it's, it's it's a great comedy, right? Like, uh, was there, and, and that, that cast on that is fantastic and, and and at the time did it feel like wow we've got like I guess a lot of them went on to do amazing things and uh yeah e- even now like it's I think the first time I ever saw Dave Chappelle like acting mm-hmm. in something even even for a small part but yeah what, what was that what was that set like and We get to see like one of my favorite scenes in that as well. We'll get to it is, is a moment that actually you're in, which always (laughs) brings me one of the biggest laughs. (laughs)
1: Oh yeah. I laugh at myself too. I laugh at that (laughs) fucking hairdo. I still laugh at it. Uh, uh, Listen, I felt like there was something big going on on Mm -hmm. the rock. I knew that this was going to be an explosive time and I had to hold on. So I didn't really quibble much about perks or finances at that point. I didn't know if it was going to last, but I thought, wow. Don't rock this because this is insane. This movie, The Rock, was insane, and then right after that, we jumped into Condé Air. and that was insane, and uh, and that was a very tough shoot because we started off in Utah and Nevada, and it was again a hundred degrees in the sun, in the salt flats, and all these big macho characters, and I was the opposite of a macho character, and and to be in another wife beater T-shirt and you know and I you know sporting that wig and all that stuff, that was is, you know, that is so not who I am as a human being. You know, I'm, I'm much more California sweet and and throw me in some nice uh, air-conditioned hotel room. <laughs> and, and there I was in the desert with all these big macho dudes who were flexing muscle and flexing mouth at the same time. And I was like not into any of it. So it was, I was personally on a miserable side of it. The crew was very cool. That kind of kept me kind of laughing through it. And I have to say the director and the cinematographer, David Tattersall, uh, both Brits were the lighthearted, hearted uh, were the light-hearted uh, humans in that film that kept me sane because I could relate to them because they were British. You know, what Brits are—they're very metro-maleish. There's nothing macho about British men, of course. You know, and they're just so—you know—hello, how are you? Oh, lovely. This is all fabulous. So wonderful. And this is wonderful. And let's explode <laughs> this shed and let's see where it goes. You know, it was hysterical. It was like watching Mary Poppins exploding things. And you know, then you know, the American, yeah. I'll fucking blow it up. So it was really much like, oh, right, 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 right. We have to blow it up. Right, well, well, let's be careful about that. You know, so it was really funny to see that. And that was my savior because they were the, sensi- they were the sense and sensibility of the set. These two Metro males heading this big fucking macho film. And now was kind of like the in-between, you know, between all the macho characters and those guys. And they kind of like allowed me to play a little bit with some humor and kind of mock a lot of shit that was going on they saw the humor in it and we we really hit it off but it was tough being in those locations i would say i was fucking miserable in the locations but you know i was happy that they were running the show and it wasn't some you know whacked out director
2: so i heard i've heard in um a previous interview you've done that you doubled for john cusack as well on that movie so yeah was that like double the
1: workload was that it was it was fucking ludicrous. I would change shirts between because they had a couple scenes together. I'd go back and forth and back and forth. This only happened in Nevada, though, and in Utah. Once we got to L.A. to do all the interior parts of the plane and all the, you know, the the uh, motorcycle things in downtown and the tunnels and when we were in Vegas and all that, they had other stand-ins for John Cusack. But once we were in those areas, because there weren't any, there were no unions back then, I did double duty. I took off the wig uh, when I worked for Cusack. Then I put on the wig when I worked for Cage. So I would kind of go flip back and forth. But um, the the scenes with Cusack were fairly simple. The scenes with Cage were not. Thank God we had a good stunt guy on that who would take care of those things. But I did. I did double duty for no double pay. Wow.
2: And then, yeah. obviously, uh, move on to... I, I, again again I, I call i call this era the the rock the conair and face off the testosterone trilogy because it's kind of oh yeah when, when we got to see cage like flex his uh action muscles and yeah there's no better than face off right and yeah
1: and tell, tell me
2: yeah tell me everything about that because it's it's a cra- wow. it's a crazy it's a crazy crazy like and a lot of people, it's that ten, that first ten minutes when we see Cage as cast a Troy that really, people go, "Wow, what a performance!" But then, like, because I've I've heard interviews with uh, the writer, um, the yeah, on on your podcast about like yeah. how the the studios didn't realise that well the actors will just play the other character as opposed to like prosthetics and. Um, yeah, that that first ten minutes, like Cage, is like really striking. But then people forget about that second half when he is playing the Sean Archer character, and it's just as great. So, yeah, what what was the what was that set like? Obviously, you got Travolta, John Woo, and Cage. Like, must have been great, right?
1: I have to say that that was the best film I'd worked on, and and if I could, you know, National Treasure was 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 great too, but. Um, Face Off was just one big fucking parade the entire time. I have to say it was more exhausting than Con because the hours were just, you know, days, nights, splits, days, nights, splits. It was just locations. All of it was so damn fucking hard. I really didn't think I would make it um, through it. And that's when I got my cage wage uh, world through it, you know, and then I got back pay for everything, which was really and. Again that's a hundred percent on on cage and also supported by john whoop uh, the first a d who helped out in that respect uh with with cover letters but that film was i would say majestic was a is a great term that was there's nothing in the world like that you know as as, as exhausting as the film business is and it, and it is six months of being on that film was a Endless roller coaster ride. You just didn't think it was ever going to stop. And every day was tiring, but every day was fun. And I I say that because John Wu has a great sense of humor and he kept things light. Like you could have had a real meanie director. This guy kept it artistic and light. It was a real danceable film to be on. And the writers, who are also the producers and creators of this masterpiece, in my opinion, um, were there every day. And, uh, you know, injecting words and and changing things and helping out and working with the director, and working with the other producers, and they were very much a part of it. And I would listen to everybody work. Because I was privileged to be next to the monitors, uh, because I worked for Cage, I felt like I was in a position where no one else in Hollywood could ever be with these megastars and be respected and, and then emulate the character as best as possible without being a jerk about it. Um, It was mesmerizing. And I got along with everybody, including Nick Cassavetes and and Travolta, who was just larger than life at the time. That was just, wow. You know, it's just, it was, it was just, every day was magical, though it was exhausting. It was, everybody in the world wanted to be on that film set. It was kind of crazy. We had a lot of security on that set. People were not visiting the set unless you had some VIP pass to show up uh i never brought anybody on that set i mean usually i'm allowed to bring people on a set but that was a a set where it was kind of like hands off um and you felt it like fuck i felt every little moment of it i knew that i was on the biggest film of the year and uh you could definitely feel that well yeah definitely one
2: of the biggest films of like the 90s as well yeah when when you look at the 90s and go like what are the kind of like temple movies of that decade like Face off time and time again, just gets brought up, and like every time every time I speak to people uh on my podcast ask them what their favorite Nick Cage films are um they like face off over and over again, and it's amazing to hear that the set like was such a a good atmosphere, and yeah, was that one that you felt we are making
1: something. Great on set, like I, I have to tell you, I felt that on The Rock and yeah. Con Air and Face Off. Nana, of his characters were so fucking different. Mm-hmm. If you really look back, if you put them all side by side, Petro, and you look yeah. at them, they were so vastly different physically. They look like different people yeah. In, yeah. on three different films. So, to say that he's not a genius, <laughs> um, in, in this respect, and with everything that's going on, I think is you're really, um. You know, insulting him.
0: Okay. I mean,
1: they're like that was for its time, the '90s, especially. So, face off, we knew was going to be a huge hit, and and I knew the Rock and con era was going to be big. I mean, it was a Jerry Brookheimer thing. I saw that going on, and you know, when you have Travolta and Cage in this this thing, this this weird concept of ripping their faces off and watching it live, like in person, and working through every shot. Um it was you know it was like being on a big broadway hit. it was like being on hamilton you know on broadway
2: so obviously like cage in the movie has to almost emulate john travolta so there is a kind of like weird meta thing where it's you emulating cage emulating travolta at one point is that is that is that is that, is that a lot to get your mind around or is it just part and, part and parcel of what the job is and entails
1: I just did whatever Cage did. Perfect. So yeah. I, I I wasn't going into the whole character-driven thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, whatever he moved on and and sat and, and expressed himself, I just did whatever he did as best as possible. If he walked fast, I walked fast. Whatever character he was playing, Travolta or Cage, it didn't matter. So to me, I just, my focus was always on that physical body and whatever he did. And if he changed marks, which he did you know, to accommodate the character – um, I just made sure that I was following his footsteps.
2: Yeah, because I, I I've seen some like uh, excellent like behind the scenes footage of Face Off, and there's like mm-hmm. there's a scene I think when like uh, Cage is choking out Travolta, and like you see this like genial quality to him that like he's really going for it in the scene, and then the moment like the John Woo says cut, like Cage is just really calm and placid and just like was that good? Like, did I I go too hard on you? And like, Travolta's there laughing and like everything you're saying, you can see that from this like, brief like one minute clip of just like, it it seemed like such a a fun set and a lot of the time, like unfortunately in Hollywood, when, when you hear of sets being really fun, the films aren't great, but this seems to be I don't know, the perfect like marriage of like, everyone on set having fun and like it being a good time and the movie itself being great
1: yeah i i mean it really was that And again it starts from the director yeah. and the writers who are very light-hearted but were very serious about the 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 ludicrous subject of, oh, of yeah. taking their faces <laughs> off but but it was all approached with a like a one two three step and uh and the first ad who's well known in hollywood as being one of the top ranking first ad's arthur anderson Um, works with John Woo or did work with him um, during the John Woo heydays, and and he kept everything on par. He was never a screamer, but he had a great sense of humor during all of these shots and and the boat scenes and all the other stuff that was going on. um, There was a lot of seriousness uh, to it. There was a lot of safety. We had safety meetings every motherfucking day. Um, sometimes four and five times a day, depending on the Sean. And that first A D took complete control, Petro, of everything. And everybody listened to him and respected him. They knew that they they needed a commander in chief to be mm-hmm. there to set the guidelines for the safety of everybody because it was a very dangerous set to be on for everybody. And we all followed protocol. So uh it was because of him and uh and John Woo keeping it light but also being stirred about what was being shot, and his vision.
2: So obviously, on on, on like as a stand-in, do you deal with like I, I have this image of just like a room full of other stand-ins, like when, when you're working <laughs> on a film like the, like a kind of like waiting uh, <laughs> a waiting room almost. Like uh is there like you're sat in a room? Do you mean you see like you the the guy doing it for Travolta, and uh, I know you've talked to um the guy who like the Bruce Willis guy who I've got to say is. I've looked at photos and it's it's a it's outstanding how much he looks like Bruce. Mm-hmm. Willis, but like, yeah, what well, um what was Travolta's standing like on on face off? Was like was 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 he doing the same thing that you do for Cage? Like kind of. Sure. No,
1: no, not really. He got fired halfway through the movie. Okay. Um, he was, <laughs> uh, he was, a, he was, uh, he was nobody's favorite. I will say, I'm not going to mention the name, but he was nobody's favorite, and it was very hard to work with him because he was uh, just this guy who thought it was all about him. He was not a team player, and um, and though he was Travolta's pick to have been on that set, um, there was a lot of talk that he had to leave the set because he was slowing mm-hmm. down production. And so um, halfway through the film they, they succumbed to letting him go. And then we, I pulled out um, an extra uh, out of the film set while we were in the uh, jail sequence. Um, and then I had to train this guy to work for Travolta. And then we got him a say card. Uh, they kind of like gave it all up to me. They said, you have to find a stand-in like to, like now. Um, <laughs> find somebody from these extras and blah blah blah. And I did. And I talked to a bunch of different people while I was there. And they kind of like led me to be the ringleader. So I was not one of those people that would be sitting in some other back rooms, It's like, oh, my God, yeah. can you get ready and do this, show?" I was next to the director and the producers the entire time as if I was producing the film. It's amazing. So uh, I was, again, I say that's why I was very privileged. And then they gave me the power to bring in a new Travolta stand in train him and, and get him his, his SAG card at the same time. And so that took a lot of energy, but I picked the right guy to so this very day, 20 years later, he's still with Travolta.
0: Wow.
1: So uh, he proved to be the right person because he was very uh, attentive. And I was looking for that in the extras of who was paying attention and who wasn't. I was very diligent with working with extras because I have to say, unlike many standards, I have to interact with all the extras while I'm working as Cage during rehearsal. So I would tell them to not overstep their boundaries, to please not, you know, hog the camera. Think of me as Cage walking through this scene, and you need to walk that way. Like, he is the star, so think of me in that respect. And I would kind of be a little on the bossy side with that. But I also realized I had to take that control because there's so much going on in the set. And a lot of people would just kind of like move in front of the camera and, and block the actor. And I was very diligent in, in, in knowing that the scene revolved around Nick's intense um, character at this time. And people had to be out of his way, but in the background. And this particular guy got it. And so when I would look through people, I would kind of feel the energy and, and that's why i kind of picked him out so i was kind of like the guy who sat next to john Wu the entire time oh, i had a chair and i just i looked at the monitors and i saw what he did and i would interact with the other actors so i was very much like like an onset producer but i was really the stand-in. i knew every shot that was happening at all given times so no i was the opposite of sitting on the sidelines i was yeah, yeah. the guy in front of the line uh, well it sounds like you're an asset as well like you saying about like
2: kind of that that bossy nature but it sounds like that's what needed to like to be done and like obviously like granted you this this yeah this 10-year career like working with Cage and there's like a month between um Conair and Faceoff coming out in movie theaters so like yeah. there must have been a quick turnaround on those films filming right
1: they overlapped, actually. <laughs> yeah. We were we were late in getting on to face up. They'd already shot scenes on face up by the time we got there. So we were I remember we worked like 18 hours on Con Air, and then the next morning we were on face off. And then we ended up doing half shoots uh, for a few days on face-off and the other half pickup shots on con air because we weren't even done with that one, but we had to get on the face-off set. So Nick would go from that short haircut on face-off back to the wig in con air and vice versa. So crazy as that was. And that stupid scene that I shot in the airplane was actually (laughs) in LA while we were doing face-off. We would jump back and forth and then I would go into that character. We shot that at the Van Nuys Airport out in the valley and then go back to the Paramount lot uh, in Hollywood. Like the days were, I can't tell you how long the days were because they just, they were all one day and it was like 24 hours straight. It just, it just, you just kept going. Yeah. yeah. Then
2: like, yeah, moving forward, like they sounded like very like, as you like to coin your phrase that like, it was a Japanese train going at full speed. I guess like working on City of Angels, was that like a kind of like, a breath of fresh air obviously it's more of a like i don't know like it's, it's not so much action packed obviously like you don't you don't do the stunts but like was it was it was it was it an easier film to work on or was it just as oh, yeah. gr- grueling as the, the rest
1: no no it was a breath of fresh air and literally because we were in fresh air we were in Malibu <laughs> we were in uh uh in Lake Tahoe uh we were in you know parts of outside of downtown you know in, in LA but outside a lot of it was shot outside mm-hmm. and so it was fresh air there was you know I didn't do any stunts there was to me, it was like a walk in the park with with a good salary. <laughs> so I was like, "Wow, I'm so fucking happy! I'm on this movie." <laughs> not that I was in love with the film so much personally, but I was in love with not having to run and jump and roll down the street to do all this fucking shit. Um, I was just kind of like standing around in a cape for the most yeah. part, and uh, and lying down. Uh, so it was kind of like uh, it was like being in a resort for me with with a paycheck. I was thrilled
2: amazing so um, yeah. and, and obviously it's another film we get to see your face i believe it's at the end when we see like the mm-hmm. the host of angels on the beach was was that always like a little bump in pay whenever your face got like gray star screens or, or it did it just,
1: yeah I, I didn't know that it was but it did <laughs> so that and even in face off i was uh i was one of the guards i was the guy yeah. in the, the the exercise guard who like uh, punched out nick in, in c i also have to defend myself i never asked for any of these parts just fyi yeah, I'd, 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 so, I'd but people think that it's like oh do you need a part i'm like no i already got a good paycheck and i've got a great job but each and every time, like in like in City of Angels, that was always a director's choice. This was kind of like a gift. They're like, "Dude, you're doing a great job. You really work this, and we're going to give you a little bump. So you're going to be on screen, and you're going to get you know X Y Z dollars to be on screen in these uh, new in these parts." And that happened on several of those films, none of which I had asked to be on. Um, but I didn't also know that they were going to pull me out and say, "Hey." We need you to play this. They did it on the rock too, but they cut my scene out. And Michael Bay actually put me in as an FBI guard. And uh, and I got cut out in the editing room, but I, I got the money for it. So that was pretty good. Um, nice. I, I didn't know. But again, that was a gift from Michael Bay to me. I was like, he's like, Marco, go get changed as a fucking FBI agent now. I'm like, what? I'm standing <laughs> in for Nick. Fuck it. We'll get somebody else. We'll get a PA to stand in for Nick. Go get yourself changed. I need you here in 20 minutes and dress <laughs> Now I <laughs> ran to wardrobe and I said, give me an outfit that looks like an FBI and we'll make it work and pin it through the back and just, you know, as close as they can get. And I got in there and I had lines and I did the scene with, with John Spencer, and Nick Cage. Later on, it was cut out. It was at the very end of the film. And this was all Michael Bay saying, thank you for being such a fucking sport and working like an asshole on this and taking my bullshit. I think, and I didn't think anything was bullshit. I just fucking love the way you work, but yeah. I, I got the part and I made, a lot of money from those checks, which I didn't know pitches that I would make, you know, it was like, you know, two years later, you're getting gifts for 20 years of of finances and you never anticipate that. You could never write that into a script. Like you could never command that because why would they give you that part? Like who the fuck am I to get that part? Yeah. So that kept happening and I didn't know why it kept happening. And then I realized, oh, these directors are appreciating what I'm doing. And they thought I was worth it. So I thought, wow, that's pretty nice of them.
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier about kind of setting out marks and making sure like Cage knew where he was going. And there's no better film to kind of talk about than obviously Snake Eyes that has this like glorious opening shot that I guess was just kind of mark heavy. Right. Just the the kind of walkthrough of the uh stadium at the beginning like what was what was that specifically like to kind of prep before nick came on to to set
1: probably the most intense i had ever worked on as a stand-in because there it was very technical like not a technical guy mm-hmm. uh but i had to be as obedient as possible it was such a long long scene especially that opening scene took us three days to set up with the 7,000 extras and you have a very quiet but diligent and focused director in Brian Del Palma. And my interaction was minimal with him. Um, it was basically with the first AD, the cinematographer and the camera operator who kind of ruled that entire shot. He was a steady Steadicam operator named Larry. And, uh, and it, he was brought in from New York because we shot that stuff in Montreal. And um, it, was, it, was, it was tough. It was, uh, it was like, you better be on the ball and there's no room to fuck around here because you're dealing with thousands of people and you need to know the scene and you need to know where Nick speaks on certain steps and certain angles. Yeah. And it was really tough to go through that, you know, to make sure I had everything marked on the, on the, on the script that I was kind of extremely paying attention to what was happening. And uh, you couldn't falter. It was it was very mark heavy. And it was very, uh, and there were a lot of close ups as well. So it was, I was always wearing lifts in my shoes. Nick is a very tall man. And I always had lifts in the shoes and I had pads put into my um, jackets because he's very broad. And I'm kind of like wimpy looking. And uh, so I really had to like up the game cosmetically to, to keep up with him. Uh, but that was hard because I was always in lifts, working in lifts for years, yeah. um, because he wasn't going to shrink anytime soon. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a, you know, you just had to do what you had to do to keep it going. But the camera crew and and the cinematographer appreciated that because you need to be up to par, especially for close-ups. It was a tough film. It was it was the mark heavy film. Yeah. So that that film
2: as well. Like I'm always fascinated with um, kind of. Films that don't really like, not that that film didn't work out, but obviously like it's famously got an ending that like never saw the light of day that they obviously had had shot. And like, yeah, what was the set like? Was there kind of, was, was it, did it seem like, not things that were going wrong, but like, did they, did, did, yeah, there's that massive ending with like a flood, isn't there? That like, like got, yeah. got scrapped. Like did, were you in there for that? Were you stood there in the water for for that?
1: Uh no, that was a stunt thing. Oh, so yeah, um, yeah because that, that would be qualified as a stunt thing. So I didn't do that part of it, which I'm I'm happy about not doing it. That's what <laughs> stunt guys do, um, because you know they're on hold through the whole film, so they're yeah. paid through the film, and they only shine when they when they're working. But they're there as safety and security, so yeah. they're they're paying for these guys to hang out and make sure that things are done on set. So once it comes to a flooding thing and those big shots, those, those scenes, I'm on the sidelines just watching, Amazing. Uh, you know,
2: where so. you want to be in that fantastic. Oh season. yeah.
1: Did you, did, did
2: was there any film that you got to like, keep any like items of wardrobe at all? Like uh, <laughs> I know personally, I would be dining out for the rest of my life going as a uh, uh, Rick Santoro to every. Uh, <laughs> single single halloween party after
1: yeah after that. well that actually suited me i actually like that suit if i could have yeah. kept it i would have kept it i would have worn it like a real person yeah to talk about looking like a greasy greek that's exactly what i look like in that thing but no nobody's allowed <laughs> to keep any wardrobe of any sort not even a pair of socks wow. that has to be um awarded by the costume designer in the studios they have to literally sign off on a piece of paper if, if, if even if it's a shirt that's ripped and not usable mm-hmm. um it all goes back to the studio unless the head of the department says the shirt is ripped if this guy wants to keep it we will give him a certain ripped shirt because they can't do anything with it but you cannot keep anything and uh, and i never took anything just yeah, fyi yeah. either <laughs> you're fired if you do
2: yeah, yeah. Well, that's that I, I imagine that's a suit as well did you feel like a obviously just as a stand-in but just like wearing that suit did you feel like this confidence I'd imagine like dressing like that you'd have this kind of like I don't know it feels like something that would wear you as opposed to you wearing it almost like I don't know like the mask with Jim Carrey like you become this 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 character as soon as that suit goes on
1: I did. I felt like I, I kind of felt like a mini me version of Rick Santoro. Okay. I had big pumps too. So I had those like 1970s wedges kind mm-hmm. of uh, shoes because Nick is again taller than I am. So I, I got to dance around like a disco boy in those big pumpy shoes. And the suit was fitted for me because it, it needed to be fitted for photo doubling. So it was it was made to measure um, for me. It's not like you're just you know, you have to end the same thing for the stunt guy. Everything's made to measure because you have to be ready to be on camera at any given time uh, for any insert shots. Well, I love that suit.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I didn't realize I'd end up speaking about a suit for so long, but it's yeah. just something that uh, uh, stood out for me for all these years. Um, you worked with some amazing directors, and, and one of them uh, now the, in Joel Schumacher, who sadly has passed recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so 8mm, eight, eight like, I, I think it's like a, a really underrated and like fascinating film and massively dark and like really 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 interesting as i said like how how yeah. was how was that to do like being being there and working with like joaquin phoenix i know he wasn't the, the household name he is today he wasn't the oscar winner but like yeah what, what was what was that set like on eight millimetre
1: it, it was dark. We filmed a half of it in New York City, and the other half was done in uh, Los Angeles. Um, um, I, I, I was just kind of walking through that thing. It was it was more um, situational for me, and it was more much more um, character driven for Nick. Of course, yeah. I didn't uh, really tap into the uh, mood or the character of Nick much in it. But I just I kind of it was an easier film for me to work through the motions technically. But a lot of that film was cut out because it would have had an NC-17 rating at the time. And what really would have driven that was that part that Joe Schumacher wanted was all the SM stuff that we had actually filmed in Los Angeles, but all of it was cut out. So it, it wouldn't meet a, a PG audience or a rated audience even. So the film kind of lacked the intensity I felt when it was released in the theaters. And I think that, both Cage and Schumacher felt the same thing. They were very much um, in cahoots and working together. I think Cage likes the intensity and the the graphics of what it really could have been,
0: yeah.
1: uh, as did Schumacher. But the studios were the, were the deciding figures in this particular scenario. And, uh, and, and a lot of that was cut out. So what could have been a real dark and dirty, dingy film ended up being kind of flat, in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, it didn't show the way it should have. But in terms of filming it, I didn't find it to be a difficult film to work with. I I actually like Schumacher a lot. Nick and him were very close friends for years on end.
2: Well, it's a very interesting film uh, for Joel Schumacher, because obviously he'd just come off of doing Batman and Robin, which Mm -hmm. he has these kind of interesting things that he like. In between those films, he kind of does these darker, um, more grittier films. But yeah, like... I don't. I feel. I feel like now, now more than ever. Like, yeah. Is, is there like a particular thing on set? I know so many people have such like fond like memories of Joel Schumacher from working with him. Like, is is there anything that like stands out to you that kind of like you were like, ah, oh, he's he's one of the good guys, which so many people kind of say they say
1: that he is. You know, that guy was the least likely person to succeed in life, given his story. And I have to say, the thing that everybody loves about him is his storytelling. Mm -hmm. This guy has a story for everything. And it's true and it's wild and it's weird from where this guy came from, from what his world was, to becoming a costume and a screenwriter, to becoming one of the most famous directors of Hollywood history from the shit that he came from in life. Mm -hmm. It just shows you that anybody could do anything they want uh, given the perseverance that he had in life. And he was like a complete outcast. He's like six foot nine or six foot seven, tall, skinny, flamboyantly gay. At a time where Hollywood was not embracing anybody gay Uh, and to be directing films like Batman and so many other wonderful films. This guy had a variety that very few directors to this day have. And, And when you really look at this guy's legacy, it's shocking. So... I was thrilled to work with him. It was a constant conversation and storytelling from his point. And I would hear all these stories and I was fascinated by everything Joe Schumacher. I didn't mean, I wasn't even as interested in the movie than listening just to stories. I just, I loved it. I wish it would have been on for like a year.
2: Oh, perfect. Yeah. I imagine that's like one of the perks is getting to meet, not obviously doing the work, but then obviously getting to meet interesting and fascinating people for all facets of the filmmaking industry and on set and um the next film you worked on was bringing out the dead again another a kind of left field turn for for nick but to to what you said earlier he just kind of liked to spread out what he was doing and how was yeah how was it working on that with martin scorsese of all all the, the the legend
1: Yeah. Well, for me, it was, you know, think about it. Like Pedro said, for you and I like to be on these film sets and you're, I'm like some little Greek guy coming up from (laughs) from Greektown in Toronto. Now, you know, after working with Schumacher, now you're with Scorsese. And that's like a five-month film, mainly nights in New York City. You know, I was nervous and intimidated by that man. You know, short as he is, he he had a lot (laughs) of power. And uh, I thought, fuck, how am I going to work with Scorsese? What is he going to think of me like a fucking Goomba? this guy couldn't have been cooler to work for and we had an actual on you know um uh first name basis to call him marty and i will refer to him as marty because he allowed me to use that name and he was very very talkative with me you know walking me through the scenes uh for nick and and going through the motions and everything else i felt like i was directed by this man and I didn't know that I was so worthy to be directed by him during these scenes. But I, I mean, I paid a lot of attention. There were a lot of intense scenes that he wanted certain positions and stuff, and I, you know, did whatever I, I whatever he said I would. And then I would tell Nick the, you know, the um, the certain marks because uh, Marty was usually behind the monitor at these points, and and they were you know far away from where we're shooting. So I would just be standing there and I would tell Nick that this is where the seat is going to cut and that's where we're going to start. And the camera is going to come up and over the ambulance, for example, and it's going to zone in on you so you can't move from this particular mark. And we have marks up on the cameras where you're staring up at it. So we had like points of interest. And all of that was, you know, the technical side I would mention to him in case it was not uh, abundantly clear um, to him because he didn't have that full on direction. Mm hmm. So it was intense working with, with that particular person and the cinematographer.
2: Yeah. I imagine that that one was another one that, that Cage, cause he seems like someone who froze himself into a role that, that yeah. What was he like on, on that set? Because obviously his character is this kind of, again, another tortured person, very much mm-hmm. a companion piece, almost to like a leaving Las Vegas of this kind of, I don't know, t- tortured soul. And like, Was I don't know? Does he have a way of kind of like when you're dealing with him? Is it like this is Nick Cage, and then I'm getting like the character? Then he goes into the character when he's on camera. Like
1: he turns it on and off. You'd be amazed. Like it's like I could never do what he does. When you see people like him work on like bringing out the dead, you know why you're not an actor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know it's like it's like oh that's why I didn't even make it or attempt it because look at that. He would turn it on. Turn it on. Turn it off and and crack a joke. And then go right into this whole kind of crazy sobbing thing and then turn it off again. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, I can't even turn my mouth off for a second. This guy was like in and out of characters. And you could see it. I would just stare at him often like like a fucking lunatic. Like as if I'm stalking him. And I'm like, I'm working with this guy, and I can't, and, he's, and, he, and he did seem tortured. Well, he wasn't in, in the character, but I also think his personality is tortured,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, as well as a, as a human being. in a good way, tortured though. Um, there's so much brilliance behind that guy, and when he did bring it up to the dead, and when you sit there and you watch the playback on the monitors of what you just saw live and what you were kind of faking in, in terms of emulating, you're mesmerized, because it's like, did I just see that live? And it looks brilliant. Um, it's just, it's, but he knows how his character is going to read on camera. He's that on it. Uh, there aren't that many people who can say that. Well, that He's that guy. Yeah, it's always like uh, a pleasure to hear those
2: stories. Like in the past, I've, I've heard like Cage, the type of guy who would turn up to table reads knowing the monologues back to front and like oh yeah it's, it's so nice to hear that the, the moment that the camera's off like he can't he can break that character and like as you said yeah t- tortured like in his personal life but in 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 the best way and i imagine playing all these characters and they they must leave leave a mark on on, a, on an actor and like i guess for you it must have been as you said amazing to see those performances First hand. um I'm, a, I'm aware i'm taking like a, a lot of a lot of your time here marco so i'll i'll, I'll rattle for you a,
1: a, 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 a good a, thing i don't have a job <laughs> amazing um, perks of retirement
2: so <laughs> got in 60 seconds and that's like that that for me is like a real fun movie and a real ragtag bunch of like cast members in that kind of in the best way possible, like, uh, like I say, and again, it's all these people who went on to do amazing, amazing like stuff, and what, one of those being uh Delroy Lindo as well. Mm-hmm. Like, what was the atmosphere on on that set? Was it this kind of because they play this like gang, like obviously off camera? Was there this atmosphere and like, yeah, of of people that got on really well and like, uh, were you a part of that?
1: I was a part of it to a certain degree. I mm-hmm. felt like it was a very playful film and it was uh he didn't want to get in the way of those playful actors, all those younger actors and they were younger mm-hmm. and Nick got along with them, along with the Duval and so forth. I mean, they were, they were in this actor cliquey mode between oh, yeah. all of them, including Angelina Jolie. So they had their own little clique thing, but we were on the sidelines enjoying their um, animation off camera. So when they were on camera, they were on it. Nobody messed up a line. Nobody messed up anything. You would think those younger actors would have fucked up some stuff. (laughs) They didn't fuck up. I was looking for people to fuck up. It was a playful film all the way around, especially because of all the cool sports cars. And we shot all around LA and it was done in the summertime. Though the hours were really intense. um, The actual workload was not intense and i loved working with angelina jolie standin who was just the sweetest thing on the planet and she made me look better she was probably the best i'd ever worked with and i was really lucky to be paired up with somebody who was such a pro and cuz often you're not and that really made my job easier uh but it was generally a lighthearted film cuz the subject was lighthearted yeah and uh and so that was kind of like fun in that respect so it was like a big summer you know teeny bopper film to work on with with a good paycheck
2: yeah I, I, and a bad guy who's like usp is that he likes whittling if i remember
1: correctly he's kind of like yeah that, that's his edge you uh, know he Reckon. was a blast yeah, that guy chris Reckon. was he's what <laughs> a fucking shakespearean actor playing this role you know that's that's a talent of jerry Bruckheimer. Mm-hmm. that guy knows how to tap into certain markets how to bring in. um Veteran actors or musicians into a film that are, are going to please certain audience members. Yeah, and uh, and he really knows how to work that and and that's kind of like his specialty I think, uh, where he kind of taps into different markets molds them together and brings in a huge blockbuster universal appeal. Um, that's that's marketing genius in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so and he was a blast like in between takes he would just sit and we'd you know, laugh, laugh He'd joke. And obviously
2: there was an, another uh, very specific British like national treasure on that film in Vinnie Jones. Uh yeah. was, was he was he a presence on set? Did he did he let people know he he was there when he was there? He seems like he would be
1: quite a laugh. Uh no, he wasn't. He was really quiet. Oh really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He no, no. He was just like cool, and you know, he was like just this cool dude. I didn't know that he was a soccer player because I don't watch him play soccer. I only heard that that's what he was. I remember we all had some big party, and and he uh, he um, he had um, Hugh Grant's house for one night. Uh, he was lived up in Beverly Hills, and and Vinny Jones apparently and Hugh Grant were very close friends, you know, back then. And he threw this huge party for the cast. And, uh, and a few key members, uh, and I happen to be one of those members. And uh, it was an amazing party, and it was like Vinny letting loose that particular night. And and he did in kind of what you would know as a Vinnie Jones type of character. Mm-hmm. But on the film set, he was just very, you know, trying to work out his lines and trying to work out the scene, And because he really wasn't an actor, mm-hmm. but I also didn't know that he was a professional soccer star.
2: Yeah, he's more famous uh, here a lot of the time for his off-field antics as opposed to his... uh his kind of on-field antics uh, a lot of the time. And some of his on-field antics as well, he's kind of known as like the brute of soccer in the UK, but that's that's never here nor there. Um,
1: But see, that's the genius of Brookheimer, bringing in, again, again, another character and a soccer player at that. Then he brought in, was it Master P was the black rapper dude? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. So he brought in in that crowd, who was the biggest in sliced bread at the time. So all these people were brought in methodically. Oh, and man. they molded them into characters and it worked again
2: like this like looking at cage's career and obviously for you it must have like how did it feel kind of having this almost like pinballing from film to film and like like tonally and i guess for you it's there there's a through line that you're, you're doing the same thing you're not you're not having to get in these different modes or obviously you're just doing what cage does but then you moved on to the family man which is this uh i don't know like a wonderful life what could have been christmas Mm -hmm. film which um yeah how how was how how was it working on that was it was was it again was it a breath of fresh air or or was it just another day at the office
1: it was always another day at the office (laughs) but the office is anywhere and everywhere and Mm -hmm. this particular film was again a fun uh, light-hearted film for, for me. And again, we shot that 50-50 New York City and again, Los Angeles So we we went to you know, both cities and you know, of course stayed in hotels in both cities and by this time You know the cities very well because you're shooting in all these locations and you're well aware of it But it was a uh, funny because of Brett Ratner. So uh, Brett was, you know, it was always a joke and Jeremy Piven was a blast uh, Nick Cage's character was you know uh, quieter and uh, very angelic um, but it was it was very lighthearted to work on it it was just it was actually kind of like a walk in the park but it was fun and the and the cinematographer was very nice and very sweet and very quiet and he was just very lighthearted all the way around and just kind of like oh we're gonna do this and let's see if you can work walk through this and it was there was no pressure i didn't feel that pressure i just felt like it was fun and light and i was in these cool locations so it's a, i was thrilled to be on that film
2: yeah i like uh, it's it, it's a, it's a real it's a real sweet film as well and it's like it, i don't know it kind of it, it gets looked over a lot at christmas but uh it's definitely on my on, on my watch list every year um then you get to fly well home as it were i'm doing air quotes for people to greece for the next film which is captain corelli's mandolin what was it like working in, in 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 greece like where specifically is it filmed uh, Captain? it was
1: is was on a, one of the ionian islands called kephalonia which is a very touristic green island uh, unlike most islands in greece um and it, it wasn't such a tourist island or, you know it is for the brits but not for the rest of the world at the time now it's you know much bigger yeah. but it was it was it was amazing to be there cause I kind of like acted as a translator, um, but uh, it was tough because we were all outdoors. As you saw, that film was completely outdoors. Even the indoors were actually, you know, sets. Um, so they weren't uh, real indoors. They were just, you know, put up with pieces of wood. It was really hot. I'm going to say it was 40 Celsius every day in Greece in the summer. So the truth is we couldn't escape the heat. And, and I complained about it as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> really, I was, you know, wearing that suit for three fucking months in that heat, in those long boots. Um, I, I felt like I was sweating for three straight months. And it was in the hot sun. I didn't enjoy it as much as you would think somebody would enjoy it. Again, it was a war film. There were explosions. There was no relief from the heat, and including our little tiny apartments, which we stayed in these little places on the island, they didn't have air conditioning at the time. So you're basically sleeping with the mosquitoes, the flies, and uh, and 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 the bees, and it became a completely sleepless three month war picture on the island of Greece. And I was kind of hoping for some break in that, <laughs> but I didn't really get it. I'll tell you the truth. So I I, I wasn't in love with being in the homeland as much as speaking Greek and listening and eating the food, of course, and, and, and knowing, and, and, you know, hanging out with some Greeks, the local Greeks, which was a lot of fun for me, but it was a a tougher film for me. And, and I was looking forward to, to vacating the premises sooner than later.
2: So with obviously the, the Greek genes, did you find like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, a bit, a bit, or like not insulting, but obviously like the one, like one of the Greek characters in there is, uh, a brit right in a uh, christian uh christian bale and like yeah and an, earl, an early perform an early performance for him and um how was he on that sex obviously like he went on to kind of like i don't know i guess ruffle some feathers in, in in the industry but i guess this was a time when he was a bit more placid a guy very similar to nick in that he seems like when he's in in the role he's 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 in there like on, do you know what I mean? He takes, he, he will do what needs to be done
1: to 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 get that movie. But yeah,
2: did you have much interaction with Christian Bale?
1: I didn't. I don't think anybody really did. He really kept to himself. Uh, he was not, uh, he, you know, he was not into having conversations. He did a scene and he would just go away, back to his trailer. Whenever the shot was done, he was done. He wasn't someone to hang out and talk and, you know, mix and mingle. He was into what he was doing and he was done when he was done he was done i, I really had no interaction with him at all so did um, you tend
2: to mix a lot with with cage like uh, around like whilst working for him like would you say you'd like striked up a friendship or is it very much like uh, a, a colleague like boss like kind of relationship
1: i think it was always a working relationship and mm-hmm. i think that i i mean i kind of liked it that way and i think he liked it but it was a very friendly working relationship yeah, of course. like that but there was a distinction that he was the boss and we were working for him but that's the kind of boss you want because you can understand there's a difference and, uh, and, you know, this guy's carrying a film. So yeah. you can't bring your personality to override his. I mean, I kinda, I, I mean, I override his personality when I'm on set because I laugh around a lot and I set things up. But when he's on set, he takes over. And that's his job, to take mm-hmm. over. When I'm there going through the motions, I kind of take over in that respect. And he likes that. So, I mean, yes, we socialized often on every film. But I also wanted to keep it to a minimum as well. Yeah. uh, Because my work hours were longer than his. And I also needed more sleep than he would need. Again, between setups, he's allowed to take a nap. I'm standing on the set in the hot sun.
0: Definitely. So
1: there's, there was no relief for me. So I had to make sure that my body was in bed at a certain hour to get up in the morning to yeah. go through the motions. Whereas a lot of the other guys would actually go out with him because they didn't spend all those hours on set. Hair and makeup wardrobe would be in the trailers for three hours in air conditioning while I'm setting up a shot. So they're relaxed. They get to take a nap me i was standing on the side of a mountain sweating to death and my makeup is running you know so it was it was very different so by the time we were wrapped i couldn't wait to go to bed
2: (laughs) i imagine uh, i I can only imagine um so this would have been a summer of war films and a a summer of heat right so obviously yes island hopping as well you you go from uh kefalonia all the way to uh hawaiian island uh for for wind talkers and back with John Wu was that was that the kind of reunion for everyone that you hoped it would be or, or how was working on winter
1: that was grueling <laughs> <laughs> that was i was so fucking tired from the greek movie uh because of the heat and no relief of ac with a minimal break in between we shot a bunch of commercials for for japan yeah. uh, in la and then flew right out to um hawaii i'd never been to hawaii and again you're on this you know, that's where they filmed Jurassic Park and, and King Kong in the same parkland, yeah, yeah. which was almost an hour's drive from, from Waikiki. Um, so it was a grueling drive to and from to get there. Then you're on set 12 hours. So you're looking at 14 hours. Then you've got to get yourself together. You basically have like your 16 hour days. But it was a very intense um, stunt oriented film. Thank God for those parts because I had (laughs) nothing to do with that. I would sit on the sidelines, but all the rest of it, the close-ups and stuff, I was always in my lifts. I was always on standby for insert shots if there were going to be any, but often I was kind of like off to the side and not needed as much as a stunt guy was on that film. That was my only saving grace, but my back was already out at this point. I would already had a herniated disc. I wouldn't tell anybody that. But uh, I was already physically beat, and this film was a rough film to be on. Um, Even in LA, that was more of a talking. So that the LA portion of it was more character driven. So I was standing in for a lot of that stuff. But uh, the Hawaii part was rough. It was just like flying around the world with the time changes. You know, from Greece to LA, and then LA to Hawaii, and it's like I, you know, my body was starting to collapse at that point. Was 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 it at this point
2: possibly that you thought, uh, well, I guess at any point you never thought this would be forever, but like, did you know at this point that maybe I'm going to have to start winding this down and look for, look for something else to do to get my, to get the money coming in?
1: Yeah, I did. Well, quietly during this time, I was, I was starting to buy real estate. Um, so I was going to see what I could, mm-hmm. you know, figure out. And at that point I'd already purchased four houses Um, So I thought I'm I'm building up my retirement. And that's what I was doing in between films, I would go back home and buy a property and rent it out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was kind of like trying to figure out where I'm going to go, because I knew that, like an athlete has so many years that they could live. I wasn't even an athlete. So I was (laughs) in a film in the film business, pretending to be an athlete, and pretending to be this guy who can actually withstand it physically, but I couldn't. So I, I knew that my end was going to come sooner than later, but I had already thought right on wind talkers. I thought, okay, this is going to shut down sooner than later.
2: Obviously like um, his career ramps up and like, there's, there's that kind of run in the nineties of the, the, the face off like Conair era. And then you get that breath of fresh air with uh, city of angels. Did adaptation come as like a breath of fresh air? Cause it's a lot of, a lot of, well, as opposed to uh, action or standing around in the hot sun, it's a it's it's a it's a movie about a guy trying to adapt a book about a flower. So yeah, like, <laughs> uh, and there's and there's two Nick Cages in that movie. Um, yeah, did that mean again? Was that double the work? Was that or or, or was there was there? another stand in as well that you had to work opposite or
1: like- it wasn't double the work that was again that was like a city of angels where for me it was a breath of fresh air. you know i i had a pillow between in my stomach and then i covered it with the shirts and i had a, a strap-on thing to look you know heavy and i was fortunate enough that i got to be at the craft service table more often than not so i had natural fat around my cheeks which made me happy so I didn't have to put the prosthetics that Nick had, prosthetics, and and stuff in his in his mouth to make him heavy because he's a hollow and fit man and I mm-hmm. was not. So that it was tough with production for me because they weren't into me because it was a low budget film when I was yeah. commanding high dollars and that became an issue with us and uh, I wasn't really respected or treated the way I felt like I had earned over the years. Uh, that took a while for the director and the production to actually warm up to me, I would say a few weeks. Once they warmed up to me, then I was allowed to like, you know, do the job that I normally do for Nick Cage yeah. at that point. So it was then a walk in the park and it was, a, it became a very um, fun and lighthearted film for me. But they had another actor playing the actor's role as Nick. I just switched shirts. So whenever they switched, you know, his brother, characters, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just change the shirt, you know. So it was really simple for me to lie down and jerk off on a, on a bed. <laughs> it was not a big deal amazing yeah and obviously the
2: director for that was like spike jones and like Mm -hmm. by the sounds of it spiky by name spiky by nature uh uh when it came to obviously (laughs) wanting you on the set but like um like at the end of it and obviously you've said throughout this like you seem to like have been an asset on a lot of those sets was that was that appreciated like eventually obviously like did they did did they say like well marco's not just there to stand in he kind of brings this extra like joie de vivre to like do you know what I mean he, he he makes things run a bit smoother than than necessarily they would have done like in certain aspects
1: yeah i mean i, I i'm not going to toot my own horn at yeah. all but i i actually was considered an asset on on film sets and i was kind of in demand by other actors as well and uh, i was very um, truthful to Cage. But you know, I also have my diva moments, which doesn't rub uh which which does rub the wrong way for certain crew members because you know film people are a little more on the artsy side and I wasn't mm-hmm. really that artsy. Uh I was more glammy. And uh but I was fairly uh forceful with the way I like to work and uh what I thought was right to be on a film set. But yeah, I, I feel like I was an asset. I, I feel like I would be an asset today. And I feel like there aren't that many standards who could have done what I had done Mm -hmm. and really understood the character and the positions and the camera angles to satisfy a director, an actor, or a cinematographer.
2: And again, another fantastic director you worked with, like you guys worked with next, uh, Ridley Scott on Matchstick Men. Mm -hmm. Again, Cage is doing like this really physical performance in this, where his character's got like ticks and stuff like that. I imagine is that is that something that you had to adopt like for your for for working on that movie, or did you just kind of again another day at the office just do what needed for kind of camera and lighting
1: uh it was the latter it was mm-hmm. it was for camera lighting for me to sit there and pretend that I could do the whole tick thing and so forth. I would look like a mocking monkey
0: yeah and
1: and I didn't want to play that and 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 be the jerk off guy, so i I did what I had to do in his camera, but not in his character, just in his motions. Like yeah. if he knocked the door, if he closed the door three times as he does, you know, all the time, one, two, three, I would do it for camera's sake, not to, you know, say, Hey, look at me. I can do it the way he does it. Yeah. The camera says, you know, knock three times the way Nick does in the exact motion. So the camera gets a good feel for it. So like, yeah. I did it exactly like him. It wasn't a mocking thing and I could never be, play the tick role that he does because i'm not really an actor he's the actor so let him do the acting and uh and that's what he did and i just did the motions you know the foot tapping or the things and that was for camera help that's what they needed yeah and so that's what i did i went through the motion but it was done in the summer of in la and it was a very easy film to work with and ridley scott was beyond pleasurable to be with beyond it's not even it was like a breeze he was to he knew everything he knew every shot that he wanted to do and we just did it yeah it was he, so organized
2: he seems like a man of few words from like kind of interviews yes, and that but like he, the, he makes those words count and like he kind of like that you see that through his films and he has done some of the greatest films
1: i guess people have ever seen and uh yeah, and he put me in as that stupid little pizza boy. Yeah. That's him. I just want to say that that wasn't even in the script. I went back to the script. I was looking at it with my buddy here. It's like, wait a minute, that's not even in there. When I was reading the script, it's like he said those. He said, say those lines. And we're going to shoot that. And they ran out to a Domino's pizza place at that particular moment and said, grab an outfit that's about his size and buy it off of the Domino's pizza people down the block and bring it over and let's use it in the movie. And it was that quick. And I they slapped on the outfit and I became the pizza man. Amazing. Again, like I think from
2: knowing obviously like your face. Uh, now like and watching these movies again for me it's like a kind of a bit like a an easter egg to be like oh it's marco when i watch these films and the people i'm watching them with are like what are you going on about it's i guess it's like seeing something i don't know in the in the back of the, the shining or something or, or or noticing something that may refer to something else um and yeah and on that movie um again as someone who's it's it's these actors who have gone on to do some amazing things as well and it's uh i, I guess you got to meet them at earlier stages in the career and you got sam rockwell i guess he, mm-hmm. he he must have been a blast on set right he was
1: yeah he was he was very personable he knew his lines he knew his character he worked very well with nick yeah. and very well with ridley scott it was just uh, it was very harmonious those guys were like you know together like you felt that harmony when they when all three of them were together it eased the setup so incredibly i can't tell you you could feel the energy of those three guys together and it's like oh i feel so relaxed about walking through the scene because they're so good at what they do and you're just gonna like walk through it they were great
2: amazing i guess that makes like working with these directors as well makes your job a lot easier someone like ridley scott like I don't mm-hmm. know, yeah, what, what, would, like, what was the most di- like difficult film for you to work on, like, before we move on?
1: Uh, difficult, physically difficult? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, fuck, um, <laughs> a few of them. <laughs> I'm going to say Con Air was definitely one of them. The Rock, I, I'm going to say The Rock was the most difficult. Mm-hmm. The Rock, physically the most difficult, because Alcatraz just was killing me, and, and, and Con Air, all those action films, and, and Face Off. They were the most difficult, but I still love face off the most. But uh, yeah, they're they're difficult. And and National Treasure was 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 tough.
2: Yeah, so that's like, did you know on the set of National Treasure that obviously this is a Brookheimer film? This is um, it would have been before uh, before or after parts of the Caribbean? So this is kind of like Brookheimer, Disney, like using that winning formula of like uh like they did with the Pirates of the Caribbean films to create these like franchise potential massive films. That, yeah, like I guess that must have been really fun to work on National Treasure like.
1: Yeah, parts of it were really fun, <laughs> parts of it were really exhausting. When I read that script, um I read all these locations <laughs> and I thought how much of this is going to be on stage because I was stunned. Then I got the shooting schedule and I thought this is not for fucking real. And it was in five states over five months. It was like a fucking carnival traveling across the country. <laughs> and I thought they're gonna fucking kill me on this movie because I, you know, through the entire time I was exhausted traveling by train, plane, and automobile. And especially when we were up in Utah, you know, doing the the Arctic scene, nine thousand feet up, you know, you're, and you're, my ears are popping, and there's no bathroom, and you're out in the snow, and it's fucking freezing in the parkas. And you had to get up there by bobcats. It was just like, what the fuck? They really are doing this, and uh, it—you it, know—it was—it was a blur to work on that film. On many parts of it, the easier parts were, I would say, the sound stage, uh, which I really liked. Which was the interior of the the treasure and so forth, and and them going down to the you know the cave and stuff. That was all done on sound stage. The LA portion was always lighter, but it was it was a brutal film to work on. Brutal. Yeah,
2: you saying about like moving about to all these places must have been like ridiculous. And I, the the image of a carnival is, is probably from from what I've like heard it, like speaking to people and stuff like that, is, is what the film industry can be like at times. Uh, um, So, I know that this wasn't the last film released, but obviously I know it was the next film like you worked on with Cage and uh, your penultimate time working with him was The Weatherman. And that looked like it must have been grueling for, for many different reasons. Standing out in the cold, being... F- uh, having things thrown at you all the time. And um... yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have to say that that was one of the hardest films, too. So, on that film, I was secretly quitting um, throughout the film. Uh, the first AD was brutal to me. She was not a fan of me by any means. And uh, I was not a fan of hers either. She thought it was a big diva collecting far too much money. Um, for being a stand-in and I thought well, I'm fucking standing outside and it's minus seven and I'm wearing a trench coat Uh, yeah for like five straight hours. So I ended up getting pneumonia. I had frostbite in my fingers I I was uh, I had three different times of sinus infection on antibiotics Uh in and out of doctors during while I was you know, I'd spend the weekend coming and going between doctors I didn't tell anybody that shit except for our core group. I never told the cage that I was so fucking sick and so tired from, you know, staring at the, you know, the bow and arrow, freezing for two, three hours, setting up that shot without gloves on. I mean, to me, it was completely inhuman. And I thought, what am I doing in life? By this point, I had already built up over six properties and I was on the verge of retirement now. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this has all got to stop. And uh, I got to get out of this movie business right after this film. Uh, If not during it, because it was killer. I love Gore Verbinski. That was great going out and having drinks with him, but (laughs) being on that film set and being in all those locations in the snow and the cold and, you know, basically standing around and moving. It was, it was very camera heavy. It was very precise. It was very Mark heavy in terms of setting down marks. Um, The camera angles were very tight. You couldn't fuck around on that um, because we're dealing with thousands of extras again on the streets of Chicago There was no room to fuck around and whether you were cold, sick and tired and had the flu, you showed up, you know, you take extra medication and you shut up and that's what I did. Uh, but off camera, I was a fucking, I was bitchy. (laughs) I was, uh, how was, how was it being,
2: yeah. Getting uh, milkshakes and just, just the, the McDonald's menu thrown at you.
1: (laughs) that was very weird i have to say like gore is very cool with it he was like we he i was the guinea pig to be practiced on of course and and that's kind of like how it goes because when you're on camera as nick was he had only one shot because mm-hmm. to clean him up takes another hour to change his clothes to redo his hair and makeup which only happened a couple of times most of the time was done in one take but all the guinea pig shots were done on me because I can just change my clothes, it doesn't really matter. But he did it as often as he could while I'm walking or sitting in the car or wherever I'm at um, to get it done right. So when Nick sits in there, he's got his aim perfect. And the camera has to go through this motion. And of course I get soaked each and every time and all this food is all over me. you know, in, in some ways it's quite humiliating because the people on the streets don't know why this guy's throwing food at you. Okay. You know, these are regular pedestrians and you can't tell them that you're shooting this, this big film because a lot of people don't understand. But you're also dealing with thousands of extras. So you better pay attention and you better just let the guy toss anything you want. Nothing hurts. So it didn't yeah. matter. Just food and, and pop. But uh, you knew that when Nick got on there, it had to be done perfectly because fuck, then you got to wait another hour for him to get redressed and it's going (laughs) to prolong the shot. I'm going to be standing in that fucking cold. So I'm like, fucking throw it all in my face and get it right for when Nick shows up. So we don't do it through two takes.
2: I guess you were praying for when like nuggets got thrown at you as opposed to uh, as opposed to a soda, right? Oh, yeah, I would eat them. A five second rule, eh? Oh, yeah. And then a film that like, well, obviously on film darts around all over the world. So I guess that traveling carnival of National Treasure went worldwide this time when it came to filming Lord of War. Like, uh, what was that like? Obviously, that opening shot, again, a film with a striking opening shot with all those, uh, all those bullets
1: and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. What was it, what was it like working on, on that movie? Mm-hmm.
1: Again, I'm gonna say that that was tough because the locations were horrendous yeah. for me um, and that opening shot took a day to set up. It was a lot of stuff with all the bullets and the camera angles and the extras and the and the area where we were at in those shanty towns in uh, Cape Town uh outside of Cape Town it was you know it was shock value to me to see that and then to be in it and to for me who goes to the bathroom a lot, there was no place to go to the bathroom um there was nowhere to wash your hands uh i mean all that stuff to me who's a very aesthetic kind of guy um it really bothered me so i felt like i was even you know just i was it just it was a film that i didn't want to work on the new york portion was okay when we were shooting it there uh because that was kind of cool because you're always in new york and you're staying in a cool hotel in new york City. Um, and but I, I felt like I was right on the ball when I was in New York. But once we hit like Africa, you know, we were on this sound stage that was had asbestos and other kind of chemicals in it because it wasn't a real sound stage. It was like a warehouse converted, mm-hmm. and it was horrible. So uh, we were all sick in there. We had to wear masks. Ironically, 20 years later, we're all wearing masks. Um, but uh, we were wearing masks during that time. And uh, it was it was brutal. I mean, I felt it to be brutal. Thank God the stunt guy did his things. But we went around to different locations in South Africa. Um, and, you know, the hot... African Sun and so forth. The people were the best part of it. I'm gonna say um, I didn't expect people in South Africa to be as friendly and and giving and as open and hospitable as they were I really didn't I thought it was gonna be like what you see in the you know in the in, in the news mm-hmm. uh, You know going back over 15 years now and I was very nervous but I was so surprised because we, you know, on the weekends, we went to bars and we went to some clubs. We went, we went to eateries and drove along the coast. And those parts were great because it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, it's like the coast of California. and People are so nice. And they talked about this racial tension. And I thought, I didn't feel any racial tension. I feel it in America. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how wild? Because I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get shot. I'm going to get killed. It's going to be. And it was so harmonious i was like whoa and that was 15 years ago it's like i was uh, that part of it blew me away the shooting part of it was very difficult because of the locations and the hours but the extras they used just regular people and you you know these poor poor people living in these shanty towns couldn't be happier humans yeah you would be stunned i don't know if you've ever been there but i was like you've got to be kidding me it really put my head in perspective of how life isn't how people see things um, oh, yeah. that part was amazing
2: well definitely they say if you if you know nothing then you you expect nothing and like yeah. uh, the people who have the the the, the littlest of material possessions pro- want for nothing and uh, are probably happier than all of the all of this kind of consumerism that we have in the kind of um first world as, as they call it but um what was it that made lord of war the kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back uh, as to say like why why were you like was that was it there you were like enough is enough i'm 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 out of the i'm off the cage train
1: uh i think a variety of things just to be mm-hmm. so far away from home to be so physically Uh, in pain and somewhat dilapidated coming in from the weatherman uh, and national chairs they were all backed up and I was so my body was so crumbling at that point I just needed to spend a year kind of like in bed at this point I'd already built up my 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 real estate retirement and I thought I wanted to tend to it I wanted to go back home and do a lot of repairs and kind of sleep and kind of fix a home up and and kind of like Get a real sense of life, but being way out in Africa and, and Namibia and all these faraway places, and you know, bumping into tarantulas and hyenas and and snakes—that's um, not the kind of guy I am. I'm much more of a cafe society person. I uh, just sit and like you know, read the New York Times and sit in some little swanked-out cafe. Uh, so it's kind of like where I really was dreaming about, it. and this was like, uh, you know, this along with the f- previous films just kind of like basically broke my back. It was like, uh, you know, and then we we kind of had a bit of a spat here and there between uh, the entourage and Cage and stuff, and it kind of, you know, like any divorce uh, between people, we divorced after that film.
2: Yeah, I, I imagine I imagine it was a a tough time for everyone. for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was, what, for everybody. I'm, we I'm we like. all felt it what are like 10 years to be there as well and i imagine like a a really i don't know from from obviously watching it on screen are like and i can only imagine what it was like for you just film after film like as as we see up until this day cage is not a man who says no to 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 working on a film and like his his yeah. output is is one of the things that that drew me to to obviously covering him on a podcast is that Here's somebody who just is always working and has this approach where he does all these weird and wonderful and amazing different films. And yeah, what a, what a ten years to be working for him, Marco? Like, I get, and I guess that would have taken toll on anyone's body apart from uh, Nick Cage because he he just kept on going. But I guess he's doing a different a different role to to yourself. Um, so, yeah what what are like if i ask everyone this and like I, again I, I said to you uh, off mic I, d- I don't ask for like a salacious story but like do you have like a specific nicholas cage story from your time working with him that like kind of like sticks out to you as like oh this is something i will look back on fondly for the for the rest of my life or something that kind of like i don't know gives gives people a slice of what 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 he's like
1: I have to say, and I'm going to speak on uh, on behalf of the entourage, uh, okay. because we all feel the same way. And this is not tooting anybody's horn, but we all feel the same way that his generosity with picking up any slack of any finances to carry us through life is all his doing. And I have to say, meeting a lot of actors, you rarely see that, especially in that egotistical time of Hollywood this guy without really asking for much made sure that everybody was taken care of and he in particular went to bat and spoke to his managers and agents and so forth to make sure that everybody's on a certain contract and we are cared for the way he is cared for I will say that that happened on every film and that was that was his that was what he wanted his generosity uh, his his appreciation for people who work for him went way. You think I went above and beyond? He went way above and beyond anything. The gifts that we received, the salaries we received, the perks we received, unmatched, in my opinion, than from um, than any other actor. And I think that's what I'm taking away from his his quiet generosity that people don't know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they think is this lunatic, and that's just a fucking character like the guy is not a goddamn lunatic the guy is very precise smart prepared organized and giving at all given times and i kind of thought that he would fall apart and and he never did he's extremely consistent in that manner so that's what i take away from him his dedication to everybody around him including the entire crew not only us yeah yeah
2: amazing i'm yeah. so glad i'm so glad that 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 is like that is the takeaway that you have from it and from the sounds of it, other, all, all the other people in his entourage, which like, um, as as a fan of someone, you always you always do you know what I mean, you always go into something and people working close to them, like fingers crossed that then they're, they're not going to turn out to 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 be an asshole, um, like like someone like Morrissey, uh, <laughs> but that's, <Yeah. laughs> that's by the by. Uh, so. Um, I know you you've done a short documentary that is being turned into a, a feature right is 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 that
1: right, or you're looking to turn it into a feature at some point? looking to turn into it. We're mm-hmm. up to a treatment point and it'll Perfect. we hope to work on it next year, like to actually shoot it, but yeah we we want to and it's it's basically it's more my story than it is anything about than cage's story it's it really is it's it's my coming of age story in okay. and 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 having to. You know, roll through Hollywood as well.
2: Amazing! Uh, I can't. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to to find out any news on that. So, yeah, in regards to to news on anything you've got coming up. So, you have a a, a book as well that you're, you're writing. Is that is, is writing
1: the- with with a ghostwriter? Writing a book, uh, and again, it focuses more on me. It does have mm-hmm. my uh, my time in Hollywood and how you get there, and how you work the system, and then how you leave the system but you don't leave scarred you don't leave uh with with uh with with uh with with nothing in your hands you walk away with with more to life than just hollywood and uh and keep yourself uh clean and sober and keep moving on and and keep building in other aspects of life because it's not all about hollywood
2: yeah that that feels like something that would be a great handbook for for a lot of people uh going into what seems on the outside as is- a very tempestuous uh, industry and mm-hmm. has, has its ha, has its faults in some areas and people can get lost in it and yeah I can't wait personally to to read what you write and um, where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing and obviously these projects you've got coming out like
1: how
2: how do they how do they keep in touch with you and keep up to date with what you're doing
1: yeah the, well the, the the book and the feature will be uh, uh there are ways away still so uh, i will update that as, as it comes but there is the instagram page it's it's all my name marco curious as a public facebook page marco curious the typical stuff the twitter is marco curious it's just it's my name so it's easy to find and then the website has a lot more information which again is just under marco um and that has all my uh my podcasts also which is Babel bs and beyond uh better known as Babel bullshit and beyond um and uh and and that has a lot of photographs and archive stuff so the website's kind of like the the main thing to look at because it's it's fun
2: well i i will say yeah i've I've listened to your podcast and i think it's it's great and like so it's the guests you've got on there as i mentioned earlier uh the gentleman's name escapes me but the guy who was bruce willis's stand in that episode specifically was something (laughs) that like i absolutely loved and uh is it uh michael cleary who wrote face yep. off the episode you did with him i would like recommend all of my listeners to to go out and like listen to marco's podcast because it is a, a fantastic listen to to get this kind of this perspective and uh an amazing an amazing raconteur as well and uh but yeah thank you so much for your time today uh marco and i feel like i've taken so much of your time and it feels like a perfect well yeah it's a perfect place to leave it
1: <laughs> no it's great I, I appreciate it too it's very nice i i, I enjoyed it very much very sweet with the great questions
2: have it guys the fantastic uh raconteur and just so many stories i could have talked to marco for absolute hours but uh as i said at the end there i felt like i was taking out too much of his time and he's a very busy man he's got a lot of irons and a lot of fires and i'm just so again thank you uh marco and his uh yeah his colleague, uh, Mark, who set up this interview. It's um, there's crazy story. Uh, I was reached out by these guys on uh, Reddit to do this, and Marco's been on the list for a long time to be on the podcast. Uh, I didn't let that slip in the interview, but I feel like now is the perfect time to let that let that uh, cat out of the bag for both Marco, if he's listening, and you guys at home. Uh, yeah, like, what, what a fantastic story, and uh, I can't wait to read his book and see what comes of kind of ventures he has in the world of the stuff he's done with Cage and beyond and yeah listen to his podcast we say it in 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 the episode his podcast uh, Bullshit Babbling Beyond is fantastic and he's always updating it and there's some amazing amazing uh, interviews as for what is coming up on Caged In um, I've got a lot of i got a lot of episodes in the bag at the moment actually so next week i'll be joined by bob turnbull the returning a guest to talk about rage slash tokarev depending on where you live and then as a little tease i just have a, yeah, a few of the upcoming guests i won't tell you what films they're doing but it's gonna be fun so i have the comedian carl donnelly uh anna bugatska from uh The Final Girls Podcast. If you're not listening to those guys, get over there. She does amazing uh interviews and like conversations about the intersection between horror movies and feminism. Always, always a good listen. I have the writer of Outcast, James Dormer on the podcast, comedian Rich Wilson, and the friends of mine who do an amazing podcast, sort of ghostly again. If you're not listening to those, uh, they're my friends james and jamie and they talk about all things ghostly on sort of ghostly Uh, as for caged in and where to get in touch if that's what you want to do i'm on all social medias at caged in pod Uh, you can catch me on email which is caged in pod at gmail Dot com. And one last thing before you go, you can always donate to this podcast on Patreon or at the moment I'm selling some limited edition prints that I've made with a friend of mine, Tim Hornsby. He did these amazing Superman caged in uh, prints that are just fantastic. They look like a DC Comics front cover. And yeah, you'll be able to find a link in the bio to those or on my social medias. I'm posting about them all the time but yeah they're just to help out the podcast and kind of uh, fun some fun little things I, I, I'd like to do I'd like to do some more merch in the future so uh, as always I've been Petrus Petsilibus I've been Caged In you have been amazing thank you for listening bye bye
1: It's family.